good to be with you again. Feels good to be back, uh, seeing so many familiar faces and so many unfamiliar faces. That's actually the more fun part for me, personally, uh, as much as I love the people that I've gotten to do life with over the past four or five years here, and then over the past decade and a half here, um, as I've sat in these seats during youth group, and uh, this place feels all too familiar. And for some of you, this feels like a very new place, and so I totally get that. Totally get uh, the anxiety that might be here, the nervousness that might be here, the things that you're walking in with. Um, and so I totally get that. And uh, let me pray again uh, and just calm our hearts uh, as the Lord can only do. So, Father, thank you for this group of people. And thank you for those that I don't know. And thank you for the, those that I do know. And thank you for working in the hearts of young adults at Davisville. Thank you for the ways that I've heard adult after adult and elder after elder uh, just share Ultimately, what you have done through a bunch of godly people that uh, just desired to love people and desired to walk across a bridge and get to know somebody, desired to love people where they were at and show them uh, a John 13, 34, and 35 type love where uh, it's just evident that people are different because people are yours and their hearts are yours and their hearts are knitted together and uh, they are experiencing intimacy with you in some way, shape, or form. And so pray that tonight would be informative, pray that it would equip, but ultimately I pray that it would move uh, these young adults closer to your heart and closer to uh, the spirit that indwells in them uh, when they know you and if they know you. And so I pray that uh, if there are, again, significant doubts about knowing you and who you are, I pray that those would be answered not just because of me and the words that I speak because of your truth in scripture and because of uh, the truth of ultimately your promises, and as we look at, as we look at ultimately the gospel and what it means for the way that we go about seeing apathy and seeing our lives and seeing the Christian life, uh, I pray that our goalposts would be moved more and more uh, towards what you would have them be for us, uh, not just tonight, but forever in our future marriages, in our future fatherhoods and motherhoods, uh, Lord. We are ultimately becoming something greater. Uh, and you are ultimately working in and through us to do that, as you will promise and have promised to not just justify us now, but sanctify us in the midst of the hardship and the pain of life, but also to glorify us forever. And so we thank you. We love you for those promises. And we, uh, we're excited to look at them and to explore them more tonight. And so we love you in your name. Amen. All right, I want you to stand up if uh, you've known me for longer than five days. Stand up. Cool. It's a left and a right thing, huh? Uh, hey, I, I love you. Uh, and those, those who are standing up, I love you. And I'm grateful for it. And I reached out to Rach because I wanted to share with you guys. Uh, and so you guys can t- sit down. If you haven't, if you did not just stand up, would you stand up? And to those that don't know me, it's really, really fun for me to get to share what I'm about to share tonight. Uh, And I hope that you hear my heart, and I hope that you hear the Spirit of God working through me and not me. Um, But it's a privilege to get to know you and a privilege to get to serve in any way sacrificially. The mark of love for a believer is sacrificial service. That is what Christ has modeled for us. Uh, And it's been really fun to get to say, hey, Rach, would you let me do that? Uh, would you let me share more of what I've learned over the past few years getting to lead this ministry and also getting a chance 
to spend time at Watermark and uh, getting a chance to lead and love people well. And so, uh, thank you. You guys can sit down. I want you to open up your Bibles to Philippians, specifically Philippians 1. And tonight, I'm going to throw a lot of Bible at you, and I'm not doing that because I want to force feed you God's Word. Uh, I used to hate reading. I really did. Uh, It was not where I felt connected to God the most, believe it or not. Uh, And so, understanding that I, again, don't really like reading, uh, and I had felt guilty for 20-some years of my Christian life uh, that I didn't know as much as I thought I should. And so if you're there, I get it. Uh, If you feel like you should know more of God's Word than you do, I get it. Um, Ultimately want to throw a lot at you because I want it to be less of me and more of Him. Uh, I have fallen in love with God's Word over the past few years, having led here and seeing His truths lived out in people and seeing death to life and seeing new creation, uh, 2 Corinthians 5.17 would say. And so, uh, someone want to read Philippians 1, 3 through 11. Come on, be loud. I give thanks to my God for every remembrance of you, always praying with joy for all of you in my every prayer, because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. I'm sure of this, that he who started a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. Indeed, it is right for me to think this way about all of you, because I have you in my heart, and you are all partners with me in grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness, how deeply I miss all of you with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I pray this, that your love will keep on growing in knowledge and every kind of discernment, so that you may approve the things that are superior, and may be pure and blameless in the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. One of the reasons why I shared that I love you is because I look at, and when I read First or Philippians 1, 3 through 11, I see a, a guy who is in chains, who is suffering to some extent, whether he's actually in prison or he's, whether he's on house arrest, we don't necessarily know, but we think he's in prison somewhere in Rome at the time where he's writing this back to a church in Philippi. And he shares a lot of love. This is kind of Paul's most endearing, most uh, warm letter that he writes. He writes a ton of epistles in the New Testament. And so, and just letters. And his, his mode here, his mood here, is probably the softest that it is in all of Scripture to a specific person. Uh, and so, not only is this kind of how I wanted my love for you guys to be mirrored, but it's also, there's also a ton of really rich purpose in why he's thanking them and what he's thanking them for. And so, in verse 5, uh, you, under, you see more of, and five and six, really, you see really the theme of Philippians, two big themes in Philippians. One is suffering and joy in the midst of suffering, right? The second one is partnership in the gospel. Philippians one is, at least the rest of it, is all about the life of Christ. Philippians two is all about the example that Christ set for us in humility. Philippians three is all, is all about uh, the prize of who Jesus is. And then four is the sufficiency of Christ and who he is. So it's all about Christ, but the major themes are that we have a partnership in the gospel if we are body, if we are part of the body of Christ and also joy in the midst of suffering. And so when you look at verse six, it says, he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. What he's talking about is not just salvation, 
not just those who are in Christ being justified and made right because of Jesus, but are being sanctified and will one day be glorified, right? Carrying it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. And then in 11, right, 11 is actually the modifier of verse 10, right? So 10 is so that you may be able to discern what is best and may be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. In 11 is filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Christ. Not the fruit of righteousness that comes through your own good works, nothing that you could have done, but righteousness that comes through Christ to the glory and praise of God, it says in the NIV. And I've spent, again, a year and a half away from this place getting to study uh, kind of chapter by chapter uh, from front to back the Bible in ways that I've never done before. Uh, And so that's my heart for you guys, is that your love may abound more and more in knowledge and depth of insight. Why? So that each of you may be able to discern what is best and pure and blameless for the day of Christ with righteousness that comes from you. How? Not because of your good works because of nothing you can do, but simply because of the spirit that indwells in you and the gospel message is at the center of that promise. Through intimacy with the king, right? Daily recognition that you can't do what you hope to do. Your apathy, ultimately, and we'll unpack this, but it comes from you trying to do what Christ has already done. And so Paul, being the recipient or, or having sent this letter to uh, a lot of these churches, right, Philippi, Colossae, all of these New Testament epistles, he wanted the people to know who Jesus is and what he came to do. You can accurately sum up pretty much all of Paul's heart in the New Testament letters with those two things. He wanted his people to know who Jesus was and what he came to do. And as I've walked again through the last few years uh, of just being a a Christ follower and having grown up in a church, I've realized that my goalposts were not the right goalposts. I was trying to think about more Bible plans, more version plans, more community groups, more Bible studies, and all of those things are good. But when those are the foundation of my faith, it's ultimately futile or insincere at worst. And so I'm hoping that tonight we shift that perspective a little bit, that you recognize the foundation of your faith has been the fact that you are justified by grace through faith and that you continue to be in your sanctification and that you will one day be in your glorification. And so turn to Acts 26 in your Bibles. I just want to show you the power that Paul had because he was literally given a mission by God. And I'll read this one. In Acts 26, as you turn there, verse 12 through 18, Paul's giving a defense of his testimony to Herod Agrippa II. This is the grandson of the more famous Herod that we see back in the Gospels in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John in the day of Jesus. But Paul describes the following. He says, starting in verse 12, one of these journeys, I was going to Damascus with the authority and commission of the chief priests. About noon, King Agrippa, as I was on the road, I saw a light from heaven, brighter than the sun, blazing around me and my companions. We all fell to the ground, and I heard a voice saying to me in Aramaic, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? It is hard for you to kick against the goads. And then I asked, who are you, Lord? And this is where I want you to pay attention to. I am Jesus, whom you are persecuting, the Lord replied. Now get up and stand on your feet. I have appeared to you to do what? To appoint you as a servant and a witness of what you have seen and will see of me. I will rescue you from your own people, and from the Gentiles. 
I am sending you them to them to open their eyes and turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by faith in me. The powerful line of to open their eyes and turn them from the darkness to light and from the power of Satan to the power of God so that they may receive forgiveness of sins and a place among those who are sanctified by me in faith. Paul's mission is to evangelize. It is to bring the gospel, bring the good news to the watching world, to sinners like him and those who don't even know Christ. I've had a lot of people ask me what the most impactful thing I learned getting to spend a year walking through the Watermark Institute, getting to spend time where the porch happens and where uh, supposedly all of this great ministry happens, right? And what I, what I have said and what I will always say is that the gospel has simply become clearer and I have simply taken steps to dive deeper into it. Uh, and that has been the most powerful thing about my spiritual life and my spiritual walk. My spiritual disciplines have become not so much easier, but they've become purposeful, more purposeful than they were ever in my life, right? Reading the Bible was always a pain for me. Memorizing verses was always almost impossible for me. But when I've recognized more and more of what God has already done for me and the fact that I am a sinner, I get to that place where I recognize more and more that I get to do a lot of things on this earth. And spending time in God's word is just one of the ways that I understand more of his goodness and more of my own depravity. The fact that I am more depraved than I will ever dare to admit to myself and God is more holier, is holier than I will have ever, ever can imagine, that is where our faith should begin and continue every day. This idea that we should preach the gospel to ourselves every day that's where that comes from. And we'll unpack it a little bit more in a little bit. I'll show you a graph that's been super, super helpful for me. But the gospel is the truth that Jesus came not to make bad people good, but dead people alive, right? It's this radical grace, this radical mercy, and this radical love that has brought you from death to life. It wasn't just, I was drowning in the ocean and I needed a life raft. It was, I was at the bottom of the ocean with, with stones tied around my feet and I needed a savior. The gospel is your greatest promise, your greatest peace, and your greatest practice. And those are the three Ps that I want you to remember tonight. The gospel is your greatest promise, your greatest peace, and your greatest practice. We love threes at Watermark. But what do I, what do I mean by that? What do I mean by the gospel being our greatest promise and our greatest peace and our greatest practice? See, so our greatest promise is the idea that the gospel isn't new, and it's not a New Testament idea brought on by Jesus and expanded upon in the rest of the New Testament. The gospel plan was set forth by God in, since the beginning of time. The proto-evangelium, the first gospel, is in Genesis 3.15, where God says in response to Satan, the serpent, doing what he did to the garden to deceive, he says, I'll put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and hers. He will crush your head and you will strike his heel. Another translation has seed, right? Genesis 3.15 sets the tone for what God is going to do, not just in the life of his son, but in your life, which is crazy, right? 
his sovereign, transcendent Elohim, as it says in Genesis 1, that part of his being sees you in Genesis 3.15. As we move forward, Genesis is all about four events and four people, right? Creation, fall, flood, Tower of Babel, and 1 through 11. And then in 12 through 50, it's all about four main characters and their narratives and their stories, right? Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, for the most part. As we walk into Genesis 12 and the story of Abraham, we see that God has uh, established a covenant with Abraham. In 12, he kind of shares with Abraham what the covenant is going to be. In 15, he ratifies the covenant. He makes it whole. He solidifies that covenant. And then in 17, he expands upon it. But he promises him land, seed, and blessing. Ultimately, that land is the land that they eventually will walk into freely simply because of God's grace. The seed is a descendant coming from the line of Abraham, and the blessing is ultimately those who curse Abraham will be cursed, and those who bless him will be blessed. And normally a covenant is made by two people, but in this one, God's solitary action in Genesis 15 indicates that the covenant is principally his promise to him and also to his people. He binds himself to the covenant while Abraham is asleep. The power in that. The fulfillment of the covenant didn't depend on Abraham's obedience, and God's love does not depend on your obedience. It rested entirely on God's faithfulness. God going through with his promise. And so after walking through the Exodus with Moses and conquering lands with Joshua, the depravity of the book of Judges, the people get to this point where they desire a king. And so we see Saul as Israel's first king. Saul tanks uh, in so many different ways. But ultimately, we see David get raised up. David is a man after God's own heart. If you've been in church, you have remembered that. But see, David also has a covenant that God introduces to him in 2 Samuel 7. The Davidic covenant is all about a house and a kingdom and a throne that you'll see through the line of David. In 2 Samuel 7, verse 12, he says, When your days are over and you rest with your ancestors, I will raise up your offspring to succeed you, your own flesh and blood, and I will establish his kingdom. He is the one who will build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. And he says that, and then everyone gets exiled, right? David sins and falls into sexual sin with Bathsheba. The whole uh, kingdom, the whole monarchy eventually falls apart. And Assyria comes and raids Israel, and Babylon essentially raids Judah 120 years later. And just before Judah is getting raided, Isaiah in the New Testament shares multiple servant songs. And all I'm doing is I'm, I'm showing you what the promise of God looks like through the Old Testament. But in Isaiah... 53, this is the fourth and final of the servant songs that foreshadow the character and kingdom and work of Jesus. Four through six, it says, Surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we consider him punished by God, stricken by him and afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him. Excuse me. And by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way. And get this, the Lord has laid on Jesus the iniquity of us all. So we've tracked gospel promises to the nation of Israel, to the beginning of the nation of Israel, through the nation of Israel, through their exile, 
and foreshadowing this Messiah, this different age to come, this suffering servant. We then hit the four Gospels after 400 years of silence, right? We hit Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and they share the testimony of who Jesus is as individual narratives, individual mosaics to the story of God. They bring color to what God's plan has been since Genesis 3.15. They're rich and powerful statements full of the words of Jesus and why he came to do what he came to do, right? Matthew 5 uh, says he came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. Mark 10.45 says he came to serve and give his life as a ransom for many. Luke 19.10 says he came to seek and save the lost. As we move into the New Testament epistles and letters, we see reinforcements of the gospel as this unbelievable promise. We are tracking with the promises of God from the beginning through Jesus. And I've got 10 or so uh, verses that I'm going to put up on the screen that I hope uh, that I'm going to have you guys read. And these 10 verses are ones that I've thought about and processed that I think give a clearer and clearer depiction of what the gospel really means. And I want you to get this because this is my whole point is that you desiring spiritual growth think that you're going to do more and more with your life. You want to do more and more with your spiritual life. And that's great. But the recognition is you have to do it through his spirit and through his strength and not your own. That's what Ephesians 6 is all about. You want to put on the armor of God? The first part of that verse, the first part of that passage is that you would do it in his strength. And so I want to read all of these. And so, uh, Abby, would you put the first one up? Would somebody read that? Thanks, Rach. You can go to the next slide, Abby. I'm just going to straight go off. And I want you to pay attention to these words, not to me. I want you to let these words soak in the power of Jesus in your life, the power of the gospel and the truth, whether you believe it or not. If you don't believe it, process that. And let's have us, when we leave here, process it with you. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 15, 1. It says, now, brothers and sisters, I want to remind you of the gospel that I preached to you. This is Paul again talking, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you have believed in vain. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day according to that scripture. Galatians 3. 13 and 14, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everything who hung, is everyone who hung on a pole. He redeemed us in order that the blessing given to Abraham might come to the Gentiles through Christ Jesus so that by faith we might receive the promise of the Spirit. I love how the Bible just connects and connects and connects. 
Ephesians 2, one of my favorites. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, dead at the bottom of the ocean, dead, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is simply by grace that you were saved. Philippians 2, in your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Colossians 1, and we'll go Colossians 2 next. It says, For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in Christ, in him, and through him, through Christ, to reconcile himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. Colossians 2, while you were dead, again dead in your sins and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. He forgave us all our sins, having canceled the charge of our legal indebtedness, having justified us, made us right, which stood against us and condemned us. He has taken it away, nailing it to the cross. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, Titus 3, he saved us, not because of righteous things we have done or righteous things we continue to do, but, by, but because of his mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth, regeneration, as it says in another testament, another uh, ESV, I think, and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out generously through Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs having the hope of eternal life. Last one, 1 Peter 2, uh, 24 and 25. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you are like sheep gone astray but now you have returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. He quotes Isaiah 53, 6, kind of 3 through 6 again. So what did, why, why did I have you walk through all of those? Why did I have you reflect on all of those? The point is because you saw, I think, and hope, you saw some of the themes that those verses, again, by multiple different authors, Paul was most of them, but there were multiple different authors, that there is a central theme to the gospel. There is a central theme to the Bible that I want you to understand. And it's the deepest, most significant promise that has ever been made to you. It's that you were once dead in your sins and trespasses. And that anything that you do, you do in vain if you do it in your own strength. Because of those verses. You are, because of 2 Corinthians 5.17, you are a new person. If you've trusted in Christ, you are not just a new name, a new identity, a new disposition. You have a new legal standing and a new hope. John 1.12 says, he gave those who believed in his name the right to become children of God. 2 Peter 2.9 says that you are a royal priesthood, a holy nation, God's special possession. Again, an Old Testament quote. 
the promises that you make are imperfect in this life. The promises that he makes are fully perfect. Your promises are very much controlled. I know mine are. I only promise what I know, what I think I can pull through on. His are relentless after you and have been. Your promises are dependent and his are covenantal. If you leave with anything tonight, then know who you are, whose you are. Know what God has done for you through his son and let that shape the way that you live this life in 2021 in America. Be humble because of it. Be loving because of it. Serve because of it. Live a life worthy of the calling that you've received. And so as we look at and form what the gospel promise is, the greatest promise that you will ever know, that should seep into the anxiety and the peace, or peace, therefore, that we have. And peace is something that in 2021, uh, it's been really freaking hard to come by. In 2021 and 2020, in a global pandemic, I've had a new job, moved to a new place, done long distance for the past, who knows? I don't even know what it is anymore. Got engaged, continued to do long distance, had new friends, had to form a new community, a new place, and a lot of you have had it way rougher than I have. And I totally get that. And the, the first Peter 5, 7 stuff on Instagram, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you, I'm sure you've seen that through the pandemic to some extent. And sometimes it just doesn't hit home for me. Sometimes that gives me like transient, fleeting, momentary peace. And then when I look at the news the next day, that peace is gone. And it's like, man, that's worldly peace. And maybe you've seen Isaiah 26.3. You keep in perfect peace those whose minds are steadfast because they trust in you. And man, that peace has also been incredibly tough. What's fascinating about Isaiah 26.3 is it was written to a group of people who were about to be exiled, who are literally about to move their homeland and to be in captivity to another people group. And maybe some of you think that's going to happen, which is incredibly scary. But that truth still reigns true because it was written to a people in Judah, in Israel, that were finding comfort and security in the world. They were finding comfort and security in who they were, not the God that had made them. And so it's been really, really tough. And I want to look not just at Isaiah 26.3, but I want to look at John 14. I want to look at the words of Jesus as he talks about, again, not just the gospel promise, but this promise of peace. And so open up John 14, 25 and 27, 25 through 27. Some of you might know it. Starting in 25, it says, All this I have spoken while still with you. This is some of the last days and last conversations that he's having with his disciples. And he says, But the Advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, will teach you all things and will remind you of everything I have said to you. Essentially, to write it down, apostles. The Holy Spirit's got your back. But 27 declares a statement that is not just for the apostles then, but for you and I today. It says, peace, it's the Hebrew for shalom. It says, peace I leave with you, my peace I give you. I do not give to you as the world gives. Do not let your hearts be troubled and do not be afraid. In light of the gospel, in light of what you know about the Holy Spirit, 
indwelling in believers. How crazy is 27? Peace I leave with you, my peace I'm giving to you. I don't give you as the world gives. Don't let your hearts be troubled and don't be afraid. And could you imagine that? Could you imagine Jesus like sitting at, at the table next to you and you're just like, yeah, I'm peacing out, but somebody's going to come help you later. Be like, who's that going to be? If you trusted God, the son of man, to be sitting right next to you and he was like, I'm going to be out in a little bit, but I'm going to send you a helper. What, what would your emotions be like? How would you feel? See, the peace of those who follow Christ, disciples of Christ, is that our souls are assured of their salvation, not just because of what Jesus has already done, but what he has promised to continue to do in your life by sanctifying you through the work of the Holy Spirit, but also because of the glory that he has promised you. Your greatest peace is his peace and his spirit in you. Resting on that will forever be your greatest peace. And I know we try to find peace in a lot of different things. We try to find peace in money, in jobs, in body image. We try to find peace in pornography. We try to find peace in relationships. We try to find peace in people. We try to find peace in mountaintop experiences that have a facade of peace. We try to find peace anywhere we can find it, especially in the last two years. You've just tried to find rest for your soul. And the reality is that rest is only found in Jesus. Not just because of the spirit that dwells in you, because of the promises of God throughout scripture from the beginning of time. At this point, some of you might be like, man, in theory, I get that. In my mind, I totally get that. But I can't, I don't know how to live it out. There's, there's a place that I want to get to. There's somebody else that's my standard. There's some other vision of spending every day, five times a day in God's word. There's some other vision I have for my life. And I get what you're saying about God's promise being eternal. And I get what you're saying about peace that I can only find in him. But what am I supposed to do? And I know that some of you, and it, it was me for 20 years, because I think the American church grows us in a way where we're looking for the next spiritual experience rather than the next intimate moment we get with Jesus or the next intimate moment we can find with Jesus. And my greatest worry is that you'll listen to this whole message and when you leave, you'll, you'll think about, your mind will be thinking about what to do next, what to do next. It's not about what to do next. It's about who to be with next. In everything that you do, in the places that you go to work, in your quiet time in the morning, if you get it, your quiet time at night, if you get it. But see, the goalposts aren't, hey, if I get it, I'll spend it. It's, hey, I want to get it. Because of what Christ has already promised me and the peace that he's already instilled in me and given me, I want it. And I get that that's really freaking hard sometimes because I don't want it. I want everything that the world offers me. I want notoriety I want publicity. I want people to like me. I fear people a ton. You want some microwaved version of the Christian faith. You want five easy steps. You repost five easy steps. I've done it. And I'm not saying that they're not helpful. I'm saying that that is not lasting. 
And the only thing that is going to last is your relationship with a God who desires relationship with you. I want to show you this graph as we finish up. It's something that I've been encouraged by and can't stop thinking about. And I've been humbled by it. And I want you to see it. And I can send it to anybody who wants it. But often, and again, there are, uh, and there are exceptions to every rule. But I've seen more and more people who live a life between those dotted lines. Where they will get to a certain extent of their awareness of the holiness of God because they've grown up in church, they've gone to community, they've gone to a Bible study, they've gone to a young adults group, and I've seen to some extent their awareness of their own sinfulness. And then, somewhere down the road, whether it's days or weeks or months or years, we stop. We stop feeling like we need to grow more and more aware of God's holiness. Like we've arrived. And we stop certainly growing more and more aware of the depth of our sin. Have we forgotten that we were dead at the bottom of the ocean without him? Have we forget John 15, the fact that you can't do anything apart from him? That's what makes this graph come alive. That's what makes the gospel come alive every day, is that I would decide every day to grow more and more aware of God's holiness and more and more aware of my own sinfulness. And I don't want you to leave sitting in your own sinfulness. I want it to remind you of the holiness of God. But man, if those words don't strike some sort of chord, if one of them on each side doesn't strike some sort of chord, the pride and the legalism and the moralism that in the life that we live, we become our own God, we get to make decisions about who we are, where God has clearly defined who we are, or we stop realizing that we were tied again to the bottom of the ocean. Where guilt and fear and shame and insecurity and despair will continue to seep in. Because I'm just not that bad of a person. The more and more you fight, you surrender is a better way to put it to a God that is far holier than you could ever imagine and realize the depth of the sin that you are, are continuing to live in, that is where the gospel becomes more and more clear. That is where I want the goalpost to be moved. That's where I want the service. That's where I want the Bible studies. That's where I want the memorization. That's where I want everything to come from. And it's not me. That's where God desires it comes from. In this book called The Discipline of Grace by Jerry Bridges, he shares and shapes that idea a little bit. He says, everything is related. All of the dependence on God, this graph is more and more of what God desires to fuel our spiritual disciplines. You can go to the next one, Abs. Right? Because the cross becomes bigger and bigger in your life. And as the cross becomes bigger and bigger in your life, I've seen it in some of your lives, you become more and more amazed at who Jesus is and the fact that he has allowed you to do the things that he's allowed you to do. That's the humility of someone who recognizes 
what the cross represents. But it's the dependence on that idea, that truth, that God desires to fuel all of the spiritual disciplines that you long to do, that you think will make you a better Christian, that you think will get you to some extra point, that you think will get you to some standard of who you think is faithful in this world, the Sadie Robertsons and Jenny Allens of the world. All of those people, it's like you're just, you just need to do enough. You just need to read another verse, memorize that whole chapter. It's like that feels overwhelming. Great. God's love is infinitely more overwhelming than that. And to sit in that and let that fuel what you do and why you do it, that is the Christian life. And it's not always going to go well. (laughs) It's not always going to be easy. But when you come to the really hard moments in life and the cross is that big, it's a lot easier to handle. You understand the gospel as the greatest promise you'll ever know, the greatest peace you'll ever understand, and the greatest practice you know how to live. want you to understand that so much. And I'm still learning how to live that out every day. But you recognize that it's more and more of his love for you and his strength that you get to go to battle in this crazy world that we live in. To have the conversations about gender and race and politics. Man, some of you are charged by it and some of you are absolutely drained by it. But to have those in his strength rather than your own and to set aside one side and another and simply say, what would God have me do in light of the gospel? What would God have me do in light of who I am, of whose I am? And maybe take that step forward. Richard Lovelace, the guy who kind of shared that, is... Uh, kind of summarizes it, and he says, if we are not resting in Jesus' righteousness, this growing awareness of our sin becomes a crushing weight. We buckle under its load and compensate by pretending that we're better than we really are. Pretending uh, can take many forms. Dishonesty, I'm not that bad. In comparison, I'm not as bad as those people. Excuse-making, I'm not really that way. And false righteousness, here are all the good things I've done. Because we don't want to admit how sinful we really are. We spin the truth in our favor. And growing in our awareness of God's holiness is also challenging, he says. It means coming face to face with God's righteous commands and the glorious perfections of his character. It means realizing how dramatically we fall short of his standards. It means reflecting on his holy displeasure towards sin. If we're not rooted in God's acceptance of us through Jesus, we compensate by trying to earn God's approval through our performance. We live a life on a treadmill trying to gain God's favor by living up to his expectations or our mistaken view of those expectations. Read Leviticus. I pray that if you haven't trusted in Jesus for the redemption of your sins, that you would be so courageous and so humble to do so tonight. And if you have, if you've taken that step before, I challenge you to respond to the gospel every day, every day that you get to walk Say, how, how am I thinking about this decision or the way that I treat this person or the way I think about this situation in light of the gospel? In, way, in light of those two statements, deeper and deeper knowledge of his holiness and deeper and deeper knowledge of our sinfulness. 
It is the holy, transcendent, and personal Yahweh, creator, God, rescued you from death. Everything else should come from that. God desires that you would live a life worthy of the calling that you've received as a saint when you've trusted in Christ. Live as though without him you cannot do anything with eternal value. Seek to see the cross as larger and larger every day. Because powerful things happen when the body of Christ lives as though they've been moved by the blood of Christ. I love y'all, and I'm grateful for y'all. And again, those who I have not met, I love y'all, and I'm grateful for y'all. And I hope that this was helpful. And I hope that this wasn't Nate from Texas. I hope that this was uh, Nate who's been here for a long time and desired to love you more and more. And I've watched, I have watched young adults in this room go and serve this local body incredibly well and change the perspective of people who did not believe that young adults loved Jesus, who didn't believe they followed Jesus, who didn't believe that they could start something. One of the quotes that I've uh, heard time and time again uh, at Watermark and at the porch is that young adults are uh, crazy to believe, uh, crazy enough to believe that they can change the world and powerful enough to go do it. But realizing that you do it in his strength, realizing that you do it because you've been first loved. You show yourself as, as a disciple by the way that you've been discipled. And some of you have been discipled as the works is part of the way that you get saved, part of the way that you earn your way to salvation. In reality, he's already done it. You keep thinking, do this and do that, and he's th- said, it's already been done. And there is no graduating from that. There's no graduating from the gospel. Francis Schaeffer was a guy who graduated from Westminster Seminary in 1921. And he was a missionary in 1951. He went out to uh, Switzerland and he started a hostel. And in that hostel, he just started to welcome people in and share the gospel with them. He was a pastor here, seminary grad in Pennsylvania, just down the street in Glenside. He moved over to Switzerland, and three years after he started serving people and started to be on mission, he had a significant crisis of faith. And essentially what he said as he wrestled with it was that he had to go back to being agnostic. He had to wrestle with the truth of the gospel, the truth of Jesus Christ. And he said it was something that he had to wrestle with a lot He said his wife, uh, as he walked up and down the mountain, thought that uh, she did more praying in those few days than uh, she had ever done before. He had really wrestled with it, a guy who had been through as many Bible classes as you could imagine. And the power is ultimately that he didn't just come to recognize the saving grace of Jesus in that moment, but that that was the power to sanctify him every day. And he could never graduate from the gospel. You have never graduated from grace. I have never graduated from needing grace. And you will never graduate from needing grace. Let me pray. Father, thank you for these young adults. And thank you for your message. Thank you for your love. Thank you for your deep, deep, deep love for us.
that you so loved the world that you gave your only son that we might inherit eternal life. Not because of the things that we do, but simply because of your grace and your radical grace. I pray that these young adults, with all of the jobs that they're walking through, with all the relationships that they're walking through, with all the doubt that they're walking through, I pray that you would strengthen them in the gospel. I pray that at their core, they would remember that. That when everything gets challenging, when they don't know where they're going or what they're doing, they remember who has loved them. And that they can't escape from that love. That you continue to run after them harder and harder. And the more broken that we think we are, the more deep your love comes and covers us. Thank you for the ways that you have forgiven us. I confess that I don't live this out. I don't meet your standards and I never will be able to meet your standards. But you've asked me to love. You've asked me to love you. You've asked me to love people. You've asked me to make disciples. You've asked me to be joyful in the midst of it. And that's hard for me. But doing it in your strength, putting on all of the full armor of God and the only offensive weapon, offensive weapon being the sword of the spirit, which is the word of truth, would you continue to cultivate a love for your word in us? That it would be profitable in our lives for teaching others, teaching ourselves, correcting others, correcting ourselves, training others in righteousness and training ourselves in righteousness so that we might be thoroughly equipped for everything that you have for us to do. The Christian life, we, man, we really make it more complex than it is. And through your gospel, we're reminded that it is fairly simple in its idea fairly simple in its central theme and that you loved us enough and it's already been done for us. We pray that these conversations would be fruitful. We pray that these young adults would be blessed. We pray that they would be covered in your grace. In your name, amen.